It's Wednesday, August 1st, and this is The Daily Dive. With about three months to go before the midterm elections, Facebook has identified an ongoing political influence campaign on the social media network. Facebook has admitted that it is still early in their investigations, so they could not identify who the bad actors were, but it did resemble the activity of Russian interference in 2016. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us for more on how these pages sought to inflame social and political tensions. Next, Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about media bias. We know there is left and right bias in politics, but in the mainstream media, it can extend beyond that to stories on terrorism, missing minorities, even climate change. A lot of the times decisions in big national newsrooms may be made because of financial pressures or wanting the next big viral story. It might be time to take a closer look at your local news or even podcasts. Finally, an update in the story of the hazing death of Timothy Piazza, the Penn State student who was neglected by his frat brothers and didn't get medical help until the next morning after falling down 15 feet of stairs. Mike Deek, reporter for The Courier News, tells us about Ryan Burke, the Rush chair, who gave Piazza vodka during the hazing ritual and is only getting three months of house arrest. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We do not have enough technical evidence to state definitively who is behind this. But we can say that these accounts engaged in some similar activity and have connected with known IRA accounts. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Facebook has been in the news for a wide range of reasons. They had uh, some problems in the stock market. They've been all up in this fake news ongoing story. And just yesterday, they let everybody know that a few weeks ago, They had identified the first few pages and profiles that had violated their ban on coordinated, inauthentic behavior. What did Facebook say? It was a pretty significant admission that they detected some ongoing efforts to influence U.S. politics and exacerbate political tensions here beyond just what they had done in 2016. We knew that foreign actors and other malicious actors would attempt to interfere. This was the first real confirmation that it was ongoing and happening It's not totally clear that this is Russia again, although the signs are all pointing in that direction. And so it's a sign that they are far from deterred from moving again in that direction. And 2018 could be a repeat of what we saw in 2016. Yeah. So in total, they removed 32 pages and accounts from Mm -hmm. Facebook and Instagram. Doesn't seem like much. They did say that there Mm -hmm. were more than 290,000 accounts that followed at least one of those pages. So how big was this operation? Well, on the scale of, you know, America's engagement with Facebook, this is very tiny. I think they also spent about $11,000 on Facebook ads, 150 ads. This is nothing. This is not going to move public opinion in a massive way. But it does show you that these same actors are still doing what they did in 2016. A lot of disputed, by the way, about how much their efforts in 2016 may have moved the political needle, too. But that was part of a much broader influence campaign that also involved hacking and other sorts of tactics. So the question is, is this also part of a broader campaign? And at least this facet of it seems to be unchanged from what they were doing a couple of years ago. Facebook is attributing to some of the changes that they've made since 
the election the last time. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's a very tiny engagement on in relative to Facebook. Some of these pages had between zero and 10 followers. Mm-hmm. These Instagram accounts had zero followers. One of the significant things that almost 10,000, 9,500 organic posts were created mm-hmm. by these accounts. So very small, but still people were attaching themselves to it or re-submitting uh, these stories and things right. like that. There was even one event, I think, that one of the accounts posted that had something like 4,700 interested attendees. So it shows that they were still duping, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people. And that raises questions about how effective they could be at even just nudging certain issues to the forefront. They had posts related to the abolish ICE movement that's become a hot button issue inside democratic circles. And so it seems like they're trying to put their finger on some of these things and just nudge them a little bit to an unknown effect. Some of the other groups were like the resistors and Mm -hmm. things against Unite the Right. Uh, Facebook said that the reason why they had come public with some of this stuff is because it was tied to some of those events that you had just mentioned that were going to happen in a couple weeks time. So they just wanted to get ahead of it, take them off of Facebook now so that nothing would happen in case people did attend these events. How did they end up finding these? Because I know some of the accounts slipped up. Like you said, they signs are yeah. pointing that they were tied to elements of Russian interference, but there was a yep. few slip ups and that's how they caught them. This was the fascinating part, the sort of forensic way they did this. So apparently this account called the Resistors had an, briefly engaged with one of the Russia-backed accounts that Facebook had already suspended last year. And that account even it was briefly listed as the administrator for the resistors page. So when they discovered that, they worked backwards through this resistors page and I used the, the algorithm to identify 30, other 31 pages and accounts that they ended up disabling. So they were able to find patterns and code and, and things that sort of connected all these accounts. And that's also why they believe there's probably Russian fingerprints on it because of that overlap with the earlier Russian account that was suspended. What has reaction been so far from members of Congress and the Senate? A lot of them are quick to throw blame at Russia. Things are pointing towards it. We don't know. Facebook has said already they don't know exactly. They're very early in their investigation. But what has the congressional response been so far? That's been exactly it. Members of both parties even very quick to say this is almost certainly the Kremlin. This is certainly Russia being aggressive again. They're not waiting for the final results of what Facebook found because they think the evidence is pretty compelling already. Facebook wants to be absolutely airtight, but they think there's enough there to say this is Russia. They think it just is going to be a partisan split, of course, about how you respond to it. But this is already ongoing talk about further sanctions uh, on Russia based on election interference and, and some of the moves they've made in recent weeks and months. So this may just add fuel to those discussions. Well, we still have, I guess, about three more months or so till the midterm elections. So I'm sure we'll see a few more cases of this, but it does seem like they are very on it this time. But it is just a midterm. You know, who knows what will happen for the next for the larger elections uh, in a few more years. Well, and as you pointed out, they're getting better at this. Whether it just turned out to be Russia or not, whoever is doing this, Facebook said, is doing a far better job than even the Russians did in 2016 to mask their identities and prevent Facebook from detecting them. Facebook implemented all kinds of safeguards against this, and they did find these accounts, but not till after they had begun disseminating their messages. Clearly, the actors are getting a little more sophisticated, and that's going to make the job of the overseers a lot harder. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Glad to be here. Some of the finest people I know are journalists, really. Hard to believe when I say that. I hate to say it, but I have to say. But 75% of those people are 
downright dishonest. Downright dishonest. They're fake. They're fake. Joining us now is Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. One of the topics that the president likes to often talk about, tweet about, is media bias. There's a lot of people he feels that are out to get him, and he always points to the mainstream media as a big culprit in all of this. You guys there at Axios looked into a lot of reporting that's been going on, and you're finding out the media bias extends even beyond politics in a lot of cases. Tell us what your latest story is about. Yes. So most people, when they think about bias, they think about political bias, bias in the right or bias in the left. But what we don't think about is that the media often partakes in collective bias, where we'll all ignore a story or we'll all sort of take a certain side on it. And that can be just as damaging. Some of those instances, for example, are when there's a white girl that goes missing, you'll often see it gets national attention. Cable news will pick it up for weeks. Think about some of those household names, Natalie Holloway or Lacey Peterson, Elizabeth Smart. But can you even think of a national story around a black girl that's gone missing? There have been many instances where we found that minority women often go missing more than white women. They just don't get the same amount of coverage. One of those big cases ended up being the hashtag missing DC girls. In part, it was due to a change in the DC police department's social media strategy. They started putting out these notices of people going missing and people kind of misconstrued them as it was a broader thing that was happening. They said, I think they said later on that it was kind of in line with normal numbers of people missing, but you're right. They weren't getting the play in the news and people started this hashtag and then it blew up from there. Totally blew up. And, you know, another one that blew up was during the hurricanes last fall. Remember, Hurricane Maria was so massive in Puerto Rico and it didn't really become a national story until President Trump had gotten involved and it became a political story. Now, the storms were covered at nauseum by national news that had occurred in Florida. There was also flooding in Houston, Texas. But there wasn't the same amount of media coverage of what was happening in Puerto Rico simply because they're not a mainland state. So this type of media bias happens collectively across many outlets, right and the left, and it can be pervasive and it's dangerous. There was even some recent studies that came out where they had underreported the deaths in Puerto Rico. So everybody kind of missed the mark on that. And it might have been that out of sight, out of mind thing where it's not on the mainland, so we're not going to pay attention. And as you said, it not until President Trump started a fight with the mayor there that news outlets had something sexy to kind of glom onto, something that that fight, the contentious parts of it. It translates into the newsroom. There's a lot of, uh, in, in your story, you talk about climate change a little bit and how MSNBC anchor Chris Hayes had tweeted that when they do climate change stories, you know, uh, ratings go down. It's a ratings killer. So there's a financial incentive for newsrooms to cover those sexier stories. And if it's something like climate change, they're not going to do it because it's boring and people aren't interested in it. That's exactly right. I mean, when Chris Hayes, the MSNBC anchor, tweeted that climate change is a ratings killer, that was a really great example. It shouldn't matter whether anything is a ratings killer. If it's national and news, it's important to the American people, it should be covered. But there's financial incentives for avoiding certain stories or elevating other ones. I think about when it comes to cable news all the time, the political back and forth of those panels, they make for great ratings. But they're often missing some of the big stories of the day, like new studies about Alzheimer's or new investigations into discoveries around health and safety. 
It's not because the media wants to confiscate and avoid mainstream topics, but the news is under a lot of economic pressure right now. And if it's not going to get the audiences that they need to sell advertising, that's a problem for them, too. There's too much news sometimes, too much specialty news even, and things get caught in the cracks. And, you know, that's why it's more important than ever that you do look at your local news. At least they kind of get caught up in some of those trappings too sometimes, but at least they're detailing things that are, might be happening in your local community or some of those other stories, like you said, as you know, certain studies and things like that. The tools that a lot of journalists use to discover what's trending and you know trying to get that next viral hit, things like CrowdTangle and TweetDeck and these social media aggregators often points to flash in the pan stories, things that might be funnier, but it's not really a big important news story. That's exactly right. If you use some of these tools that help you see what's trending, the problem is that you succumb to popularity bias, which again, as you just said, doesn't necessarily equate to what's the most important story, just what's the most popular one. News organizations need to be careful when using some of these tools to not adjust their coverage just to what's going viral, but to use those tools to see how could they better cover important news in a way that their audiences will be receptive. It's an interesting thing that we have here with the huge impact of social media now. There's you know local newsrooms, national newsrooms, and people can pick and choose what they want to hear a lot of times. So, you know, the newsrooms, the news organizations are fighting for that, like I said, those viral stories or the thing that's just going to catch the most eyeballs and the most ears. And a lot of times that, like you said in your article, it's hard to detect these things in real and address in real time because they're fighting for those ratings and all the other important stuff falls through the cracks. So it's a it's an interesting thing that's happening with the news these days. It is. It's an interesting time. And hopefully the economic situation that media and news organizations find themselves in gets better so that they feel empowered to cover the most important topics, not just the ones that get the best ratings. Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. No one's child should be hurt or die from just trying to join an organization. Their commitment evidences the importance of bringing justice and is an important step towards change as it relates to these archaic and egregious behaviors. Joining us now is Mike Deke, reporter for The Courier News. We got an update yesterday in the long-running story of Timothy Piazza. He was a Penn State fraternity member who was put through a, a hazing thing for his frat. He fell down some stairs. He banged his head. He was left overnight frat brothers passed by him and didn't do anything he ended up dying and it kind of became a story symbolic of these hazing rituals what was the latest update that we heard in court the latest update was that yesterday one of the uh, frat members who had pleaded guilty the first frat member who had pleaded guilty in connection with the case was sentenced to three months house arrest 27 months probation 100 hours of community service and fined one thousand dollars this is Ryan Burke. He's 21 years old. What was he accused of with regards to Timothy Piazza? Because there's a, a number of frat members that are going to court over this whole thing, but he was just the first one that got sentenced. He was the first one to plead guilty, and he pled guilty to providing Tim with a bottle of vodka. And he also had other charges of underage drinking and underage possession of liquor, too. They said that he was one of the main ones. that, he, Like you said, he gave them the vodka 
part of this whole investigation was that the fraternity there had a, an elaborate system of cameras. So they had a lot of video evidence of what was going on there. He was wearing a baseball cap during the event that he said later that he could, he seemed very nonchalant, like he didn't care about, you know, his condition. Well, yeah. And at the hearing, Tim Piazza's father questioned Burke's remorse, saying that it was an orchestrated initiation ritual with the objective of feeding the pledges excessive and potentially lethal amounts of alcohol in a short period of time. Ryan Burke's attorney said that he was pleased with the ruling. How did Tim Piazza's parents react to it? The Piazza's lawyer, Tim Klein, said this was a good first step for the family. And it's still going to be a long road. Like I said, there's a lot of other frat members that... Uh, a lot of other frat members. I think their next trial is not until February of next year. I've gotten a lot of comment from people responding to their, our posts about this, saying that the uh, sentence was unbelievable, ridiculous, a slap on the wrist, no justice. That's why this sort of thing will continue. At the heart of it is what happened after the drinking binge that Piazza went through and then what all the frat members did because he was injured there on the floor and they passed him by numerous times. There's multiple interactions between his limp body on the floor and a lot of the different frat members. Take us back and tell us what happened in those final hours of Tim Piazza's life. Well, in those final hours, he fell down the stairs of the frat house and he was unconscious because he had head injuries. And they woke up the next morning and they found him there and it took them about 30 minutes to call 911 to have him transported to a hospital. And after he got to the local hospital, he was then transferred to another hospital where they treated cases like that. And that's where he died shortly after. As I said, there was an elaborate video system, so they were able to see a lot of this stuff. And he got up and fell down multiple times. He fell off the couch at one point right. and frat members threw him back on the couch. There was even a fraternity brother that said, hey, this guy needs medical help. And they dismissed him saying, well, we're biology and kinesiology majors, so you don't know what you're talking about. Well, basically what happened is the frat brothers exchanged text messages with each other about what to do. And they even Googled what to do. And doing all that, they didn't call what they should have done was call 911. Right. They Googled phrases like falling asleep after head injury, cold extremities, exactly. cold extremities in a drunk person, binge drinking, alcohol, bruising or discoloration. Things that really signal a severe medical condition that needs to be addressed immediately. The first tragedy, according to the parents, is the, is the ritual that he had to go through. The second tragedy is that the fact that they tried to cover up and did not call 911. The hazing ritual that he went through was called the gauntlet. Do we know what the, that consists of? The gauntlet, of? yeah. The gauntlet was basically seeing how much alcohol he could drink in a short amount of time. And that's where the vodka, and I guess he was drinking a lot of uh, large amounts of beer as well. That's where all that Exa stuff came in. Exactly. Wow. It's one of those stories, as you said, they were trying to cover it up. They obviously, a bunch of kids drinking, they didn't want to get in trouble. There were certain rules about hazing and drinking already imposed on the fraternities. And it's just one of those sad stories because had they addressed it sooner, you know, it could have been, uh, you know, nothing more than like a concussion and, and, you know, getting his fluids the next day at the hospital or something. Exactly. That's that's why Jim and Evelyn Piazza have launched campaigns to make sure that hazing laws are enforced throughout the country and are made tougher so that this sort of thing doesn't even have a chance of happening. Well, we'll see what else happens. I guess we have to wait till February for the next round of trials and things like that for all the other members of the fraternity. 
But uh, at least we have a, a, a first step, as the lawyer for the parents said, a first step in, in closure for all of this. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Mike Deke, reporter for The Courier News. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.